The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I invite you to open to Matthew chapter 5, if you haven't done so already. Matthew chapter 5, and this morning we are beginning a new series simply entitled The Sermon. Uh, And that's the title because we're going to be going through Matthew's chapters 5, 6, and 7, which contain the most famous block of Jesus' teaching that's traditionally called the Sermon on the Mount. And I wonder, I wonder as soon as I say that we're headed into the Sermon on the Mount, like what comes to mind for you? Uh, This this sermon, uh, as Brad would put it, this sermon slaps. Um, As I would say it, it kicks you in the face. Um... It hurts, but don't worry, then it heals and brings hope. It's good gospel news. But I wonder, as soon as I say we're going through the Sermon on the Mount, like, what comes to your mind? Like, for some people, maybe for some of you, the very beginning of the sermon comes to mind with its famous Beatitudes, you know, the blessed are those statements. For others, it may be uh, the prayer that falls right smack dab in the middle where Jesus teaches us how to pray, our Father who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Maybe For you, uh, a particular teaching, famous teaching from the sermon comes to mind, like his teaching about anger or lust or anxiety, or maybe it's one of the more famous images from the sermon, like that of a a log versus a speck in the eye or that of wolves in sheep's clothing. The, The point is that there is a host of scattered images or scattered things that we may think of, but the thing that we don't think of is one united theme, and that is because I would submit that's because we don't actually think of this sermon as a sermon. We think of it as like this random collection of Jesus' teachings on various topics. Like, oh, if I want to know what Jesus has to say about subject A, I just turn to this page, look it up, there's the answer, there we go. It's like Matthew is just kind of cobbled together random teachings of Jesus. But here's the deal. If you actually look at the Gospel of Matthew, it is the most structured from a literary perspective. It's the most structured out of any of our Gospels. It is highly structured. We're, we're going to actually see, hopefully even a little bit this morning, that Matthew is a structure master, and his organization of this sermon is no exception. In other words, there, there may be many parts to the sermon. It may have many different things to say, but rest assured there is one central, essential message that we dare not miss. So what I want us to do this morning is to simply begin by asking three questions to try and get in our minds what is the central message, the central theme of this sermon here at the beginning. So we're going to ask three questions, start big picture, and zoom further and further in. So question number one is just what is the point of the sermon? Like the whole thing, what's Jesus driving at we'll begin there and then we'll zoom in on the introduction and ask question number two what's the purpose of the beatitudes like that's how the sermon begins with eight slash kind of nine-ish we'll talk about that in a minute eight kind of nine-ish beatitudes we'll actually walk through these beatitudes one at a time over the next eight weeks in fact that's how we will conclude this morning is by digging down into the details at least a little bit of the first beatitude and asking question number three what is poor in spirit? So, you got our three questions. Got the plan. What's the point of the sermon? What's the purpose of the Beatitudes? What is poor in spirit? And all three of those questions connect and help show us the central, essential message of Jesus right here. So, let's begin. 
dive right in with question number one. This is where we will spend the overwhelming majority of our time, simply asking, what's the point of the sermon? My kids can be suckers for commercials, and that's not entirely fair to say because I too can be a sucker for a commercial. We all can, if we're honest. There's a reason that companies pour millions of dollars into advertisements because they work. Why? Why, why do commercials work? It's because they make promises. Promises to give us something that we're missing, something we don't have, that we clearly need. And the promise is that if we will get their product, their thing, then we will finally possess fulfillment. We'll finally feel complete, happy. We will finally have the abundant life of full joy. That's, that's why commercials work. Because we all want that, and we all know that that is missing. Don't you know that deep in your bones? What I long for in life is, is life. And life abundantly. That's full joy we all long for that and so we're all desperate for gospel good news of where to find it this is not unique to us like human beings we have always been this way over 1600 years ago the brilliant african theologian saint augustine he put it this way he said it is the decided opinion of all who use their brains that all men desire to be happy in other words, Augustine says, if you're a thinking person, you know this is a reality. All of us, this is what we desire, it's what drives us. For Augustine, this is, this is what it means to be human. We all want abundant life of full joy. We've spent the entirety of human history trying to find it, but to no avail. That, that is the conclusion of the Oxford-trained historian Yuval Noah Harari. Heard of this guy? Heard of his book? It's a very famous book. It's called Sapiens. The subtitle is A Brief History of Humankind. Harari's not a Christian, but that's actually that's part of what makes his work so fascinating. Because what he's trying to do in this book is not just trace the history of human civilization, but trace the entire history of Homo sapiens, period, and work through all of their advancements, all the revolutions, everything to how we came to be the dominant species on the planet. Takes him 400 pages to do this. And after 400 pages of cataloging, cognitive, industrial, agriculture, all these revolutions and advancements that we have made, at the conclusion of all that, Harari poses this question. Are we any happier? Listen to how he says it. He writes, the last 500 years have witnessed a breathtaking series of revolutions. The earth's been united into a single ecological and historical sphere. The economy has grown exponentially. And humankind today enjoys the kind of wealth that used to be the stuff of fairy tales. But are we happier? Did the wealth humankind accumulated over the last five centuries translate to a newfound contentment? Did the discovery of inexhaustible energy resources open before us inexhaustible stores of bliss? Was the late Neil Armstrong, whose footprint remains intact on the windless moon, happier than the nameless hunter-gatherer who left her handprint on the wall of the Chavot Cave? If not, what? 
was the point? What was the point of developing agriculture, cities, writing, coinage, empire, science, and industry? Harari looks at all of human history, and this is his hope-filled conclusion. We have all longed and looked for an abundant life of full joy, for a gospel good news of where and how to find it in all of our searching through all of human history only turns up false gospel after false gospel, commercial after commercial. Shades. I've got good news this morning. I've got a gospel. The gospel. And that's what the sermon in Matthew 5 through 7 is all about. This sermon is about the abundant life of full joy. The sermon is about the abundant life of full joy because it is about life in Christ. What is the point of the sermon? True life in Christ. That's as simple as I can put it. What's the point of the entire Sermon on the Mount? To hold out for you. Here's what true life looks like. That what you've been looking for? Wanting? Searching? True life. And it's found in one place. It's found in Christ. The sermon, the point of the whole thing is true life in Christ. Christ. Let me show this to you in a couple of different ways. First, look back at Matthew chapter 4. I know I told you to open chapter 5. Go back to chapter 4. Look at verse 17. This is when Jesus begins preaching and teaching. And what's at the heart of his message? There's a summary of his message that's going to be unpacked even further through the Sermon on the Mount. But right here we get this summary statement. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus arrives announcing, or comes onto the scene announcing the arrival of the kingdom of heaven. This is the good news of the abundant life of joy. God had long ago promised through the prophets that one day his kingdom would come. And when his kingdom comes, all things will be made right. Abundant life of full joy that you have always longed for present here fulfilled now in his kingdom just just go home this afternoon and read isaiah 61 it's great fun afternoon reading i told the earlier service just make yourself a cup of earl gray sit down and sip some some sip some earl gray read some isaiah 61 there's nothing better you can do with your afternoon read isaiah 61 this is a passage that jesus quotes and claims that he himself fulfills The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news, to bring gospel. The Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And what is that good news? Just keep reading Isaiah 61. Read it all the way through Isaiah 65, which describes the new heavens and new earth, the complete redemption of all of creation. That is the ultimate coming of God's kingdom that we all long for. A restoration of all of creation to the way it was originally created to be. Creation free of sin and injustice and pain and death. Nothing but abundant life of joy that we all long for because we were made for that. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus comes announcing that kingdom. True life that you were made for. It has arrived. 
And specifically, it has arrived in Christ, the King of the kingdom. Matthew waves that flag at us from the very opening words of his gospel. You can look at it if you want. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 1. This is the first thing Matthew says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's Matthew's way of waving a huge flag and saying all of the promises of the Old Testament made to Abraham, made to David, that you've heard through the prophets of a coming king who would bring blessing to the entire world. It's coming. It's coming in Jesus, the Christ, the King. Son of Abraham, son of David. God had made promises to Abraham that blessing, true life, abundant life, full forever joy, it would come to the entire world through Abraham's offspring. Matthew says Jesus is the offspring of Abraham. Later in the Old Testament, God made promises to King David that blessing, true life, the abundant life of full joy, it would come through the kingdom of one of his offspring. Jesus is the offspring of David. He is the king. Matthew says he's come to bring his kingdom, to bring true life. True life is in Christ. Do you see that explicitly right here in the first verse of Matthew? We not only see it explicitly right here in the first verse of Matthew, we see it implicitly in the first few chapters of Matthew. Remember I told you Matthew is like a king of structure. And these opening chapters of his gospel are structured in a very specific way to help us see that Christ is the king, bringing his kingdom, and in him is found true life. Matthew's opening chapters are structured to parallel Jesus' life with the life of Moses. You can see it really clearly if you just read through that, through it. I'll summarize it for you real quickly. In chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is to be a deliverer, just as Moses was a deliverer. Moses delivered the Israelites out of slavery. Chapter 1 and verse 21 says that Jesus will save his people from their sins. That's why his name Jesus means Yahweh saves. He's a deliverer. In chapter 2, as an infant, Jesus' life is threatened by a crazed king, just like Moses' life was threatened by a crazed Pharaoh. Just like Moses was miraculously saved from that threat, Jesus is miraculously spared from that threat. Jesus and his family, they escaped down into Egypt, later to come out of Egypt, just like Moses led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Do you remember what happened as soon as Moses led the people out of Egypt? They passed through the Red Sea. Matthew structures his narrative so that when Jesus comes out of Egypt, the very next thing we read about is him passing through the baptismal waters. He passes through the baptismal waters to head into the wilderness for 40 days and face down temptation. Just like the people of the Old Testament came out of Egypt, passed through the waters of the Red Sea to head into the wilderness for 40 years and face down temptation. Matthew's structure makes it clear that he wants us to see Jesus is not just the son of Abraham. He's not just the son of David. He is also the new and greater Moses. Go back, read Deuteronomy 18 and verse 18. God had promised that one day a prophet like Moses would arise. That's Jesus. That's what Matthew is telling us. He's here. He's the new Moses, and he's a greater Moses because he's not just here to save people from their physical slavery, but from spiritual slavery to sin. And he will lead them into the ultimate promised land of the kingdom of God. And so that's the very thing Jesus announces. Matthew 4 and verse 17, one more time. Jesus says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
Repent. Just means to turn. Turn from whatever kingdom you've been seeking. Whatever, whatever you've been seeking, the, wherever you have thought that you would find abundant life of full joy, whatever commercial you've been buying to, into, whatever commercial you've been substituting for the kingdom, repent. Turn from that. Why? For the kingdom of heaven. That which is the only thing that can bring true, abundant life of full joy forever. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The abundant life of full joy is here. True life is here because I'm here, is what he's saying. True life is in Christ. The king of the kingdom. That's the point of the sermon. I I want us to see that explicitly because you're like, great, Jonathan, you've said that many, many times. The point of the sermon is that true life is in Christ. And you've been trying to show us that everywhere except in the sermon. We're headed there now. Look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. Jesus says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's what we want, right? True, abundant life of full joy forever. With God as our joy forever. We want Him, citizens of His kingdom, His rule, His reign perfectly. Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter it. This is the thesis statement of the sermon. Like, Let's go back to uh, high school paper writing or first semester of college. Everybody remember what a thesis statement is? like the controlling purpose statement right here everything else in the sermon is connected to this and aims to unpack this so thesis statement jesus says the scribes and the pharisees your teachers who sit in moses's seat he'll say that later he's here to be the real and true new moses The scribes and the Pharisees, your teachers, yeah, the way of righteousness that they have been teaching you and showing you, it doesn't actually lead to life. Follow them and you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. You need a righteousness that exceeds theirs, that's greater than theirs. That had to sound crazy to Jesus' listeners. Because to all of them, the scribes and the Pharisees were the most righteous people they knew. Think of the most righteous people you know. And Jesus is saying, yeah, not getting into the kingdom of heaven unless you got a righteousness better than theirs. They they got like a 90 on the righteousness holiness scale. You need a 95 bare minimum. It's not what Jesus is saying at all, but that's what it sounds like on the surface, doesn't it? Jesus says you need a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Why? What was wrong with the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Again and again and again, throughout this sermon, Jesus is going to say the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, it's only external. It's only external. He unpacks that all throughout the sermon. Just read through it. You'll see in Matthew chapter 5, him talk about how they may not murder, but their hearts are filled with hate. They may not commit adultery, but their hearts are consumed by lust. Read through chapter 6. 
They may engage in all sorts of worship practices like almsgiving and prayer and fasting, but they do it for show and for the love of people's praise. They don't do it because they want to praise and love their Father in heaven. Read through Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus talks about how it's almost like they've got a stinking log stuck in their own eye, but they can't even notice that because they're too busy grabbing the specks out of everybody else's eye. They have a righteousness that's only external. And so Jesus will actually conclude the sermon with a warning to everybody listening to him. A warning, don't follow such wolves in sheep's clothing. You get that metaphor? Externally, they look great. But their, inter- their external action does not match their internal motivation. Jesus says don't follow them. At the end of the sermon, he'll actually say to follow them is to take a wide way that leads to destruction. But there's good news. There is a narrow path that leads to life. But Jesus says, few are those who find it. So my question is, how do we find it? How do we have a righteousness greater than that of the Pharisees? Now, I'm about to answer that question, but we've got to be really, really careful right here, okay? I don't want to be misunderstood. If you misunderstand me, ask me questions, and I'll explain later. Because I know that everybody seated in this room right now, all of you are good Protestants, which is, which is what, I, that, that's what I hope. But as good Protestants, when I ask this question, how are we to have a greater righteousness than that of the Pharisees, our quick answer to that question is by saying, well, because we need the righteousness of Christ. It doesn't matter how much we work or do good works or any of these things. The Pharisees can't have enough righteousness. We can't have enough righteousness. We need perfect righteousness, Christ's righteousness. We need him to die in our place for our sin and give us his perfect righteousness. Fancy theological word for that. We need the imputed righteousness of Christ. His righteousness imputed to us, given us on our account. Shades, all of that is gloriously true. But is that what Jesus is saying right here in this sermon? Like, like is the entire point of this sermon to say, see, even the the Pharisees can't be righteous enough. None of us can. Everything that this sets before us is just setting before us an impossible ethical standard just to show us you can't do this, the Pharisees can't do this, nobody can do this. None of this actually has any real relevance or bearing on your day-to-day life. All of this teaching is just to show you it's impossible for you to attain the righteousness that you need. You need a perfect righteousness instead. Is that what the sermon is saying? Many people think so, and they'll run to places like Matthew 5.48 to say so. Matthew 5.48, Jesus says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. See? That's the point. You can't do that, so you need Jesus' righteousness. Again, Shades, everything that I just said is theologically true. But is that the point of the sermon? Or is the point that when you truly belong to Jesus, in other words, when you have received his righteousness imputed to you, is the point when you truly belong to Jesus and have received his righteousness, that transforms your heart. Filling it 
with affection for God so that your actions flow out of those affections. Chase, when Jesus says your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, first of all, we've got to know that the Bible uses the word righteousness in different ways in different places. In some places, yes, it is talking about the imputed righteousness that you need, that Christ obeyed on your behalf to give you. But in other places, when it talks about us being righteous, it's talking about us living in line with the will of God. Living rightly before the Lord. Shades, when Jesus says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, He is not saying, you need to do more external deeds than the Pharisees. You've got to do more. Live up to a higher standard. He's not saying you must do more external deeds. He's saying you must have different internal affections. The problem with the Pharisees' righteousness is that it's only external. The righteousness that Jesus is calling for is the righteousness of a transformed heart. Where our actions aren't just externals with a heart that doesn't match. No, our actions flow from the affections of our heart. That's what He is calling for. Quite literally in Matthew 5.48. I'll read it to you again. You must therefore be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Perfect is a terrible translation of the Greek word teleos right there. It's a terrible translation because in English, when we hear the word perfect, we all think of moral perfection. The Greek word teleos would be much better translated as complete or whole, meaning all of something, united, to get wholehearted devotion to something. You must be whole, complete, as your heavenly Father is whole or complete. In other words, just as God's affections and actions are united, His actions flow out of His affections. He acts in accord with who He actually is. He's whole. He's complete. He's not divided like the scribes and the Pharisees who have external actions that don't match with internal affections. You are to be whole, complete. By His grace in Christ, God transforms our heart to be like His transforms our heart to give us internal affections from which our external actions flow. That's what the whole sermon unpacks. It unpacks what this righteousness of of matching affection and action looks like. It unpacks it in relation to the Word and to worship and the world whole sermon it it unpacks what this righteousness of matching affection and action what it looks like in relation to the word jesus is going to say it doesn't look like merely externally obeying commands don't murder don't commit adultery no it looks like actually having a transformed heart it doesn't hate it can actually put lust to death the sermon unpacks what this righteousness looks like in in regard not just to the word but into but in regard to worship It doesn't look like just engaging in worship practices such as giving or or praying or fasting just so that other people around you see how holy you are. No, it looks like these things actually flowing out of a heart that loves and only wants to serve and praise the Father. The sermon unpacks 
what this righteousness looks like in relation not just to the word and to worship, but to the world. It impacts what it looks like in relation to money, possessions, and other people. It impacts what it looks like to have actions that flow out of affections for God and faith in Him. This sermon unpacks true life in Christ. It's saying here is what life in the kingdom of Christ looks like. The abundant life of full joy. Not a divided life. A united and whole life. Real affection for Christ that flows forth in real action for Christ. The abundant life of full joy. This is the point of the sermon. True life is in Christ and you're invited in. You're invited in. Shades. That's, that's how the sermon begins. It's also how it ends, but we'll get there another day. We don't have time to go there right now. The sermon begins by inviting us into life in Christ because it begins with the Beatitudes. That takes us to question number two. What is the purpose of the Beatitudes? So the point of the whole sermon is to hold forth true life in Christ. The Beatitudes are connected to that. What's the purpose of the Beatitudes? To invite us into life in Christ. Look at Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up onto the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So right here, Matthew is continuing his structural parallel between Jesus and Moses. Just like Moses went up, onto Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19 to receive the word of God about how the people of God were to live in his kingdom. Matthew uses actually the exact same verbiage to describe Jesus going up onto the mountain. But instead of receiving the word of God like Moses did, Jesus just delivers it because he is God. Moses and all of the other teachers after him, they only spoke with authority by speaking from God's Word. Jesus speaks with authority because He is the Word. Made flesh. Even the crowds listening to Him recognize this by the time that He's done. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 28. When Jesus had finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at His teaching, for He was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. This is what Matthew is communicating by emphasizing Jesus going up onto the mountain. That he is delivering the word of God from a position of authority. This is how Matthew will conclude his stinking gospel. Once again, on a mountain with Jesus saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's communicating that Jesus is the true and greater Moses who speaks with the authority of God because he is God. That's communicated not just by his going up on the mountain, but by his sitting down. Sitting within this culture was to teach from a position of authority. In the synagogue, the teacher sat. Everybody else stood. I say we try it. <laughs> the point of Matthew describing this it's not merely geographical. It's like Matthew saying, who holds this position of authority in your life? Jesus is presenting himself 
to the people as the only one who should. He's above Moses. He's above all other teachers. He is God and he alone gets to sit and describe to us, here is what abundant, the abundant life of joy that you have been searching for your whole life. Here's what it looks like. Who, who shades, has that seat of authority in your life? Who stands on the mountain or sits on the mountain of your heart? Describes to you, here's, here's the way to the abundant life of joy and you follow it. Matthew is claiming that kind of authority belongs to one, to Christ, and Christ alone, because he is the king of the kingdom where abundant life of full joy is found. So Jesus takes his authoritative place, and what does he authoritatively say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's the first of eight Beatitudes. Again, highly structured right here first four beatitudes in greek are actually alliterated so see even jesus likes alliteration <laughs> there are eight beatitudes if you read through them and you can tell that they are meant to go together as a set because the first one and the last one have the exact same promise it's an echo it's called an inclusio so it's kind of like brackets. It's like this is a list that all goes together. Look at it. Verse 3, the first beatitude. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Here's the promise. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Go to the eighth one in verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Same promise. Brackets. This list of eight, it goes together. Now some of you may be looking ahead to the next verse. Verse 11, you may be like, aha! Jonathan, there's not eight. There's nine. There's a ninth beatitude in verse 11. Ish, kind of. Uh, this is a common structure in ancient lists. It was very common in ancient lists for there to be the self-contained list and then kind of a bonus. And the bonus really was just taking the last item and expanding it. Expanding it to emphasize the main theme of the list that should color everything else we see. It, it, it's like right here, it's almost like verse 11 should cast a shadow over all of the other Beatitudes and influence the way that we read them. And what do we find in verse 11? Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, insult you, slander you. When you experience rejection. In other words, if these Beatitudes are invitations into the abundant life of full joy, Jesus says they are the most opposite thing that this world has ever seen, and they are going to reject you if you follow me. And that colors the way that we see this entire list. We'll see that a little bit more here in, in just a moment. But Jesus begins with this list of eight plus one. Beatitudes. Why? Why begin the sermon this way? What's the purpose of these Beatitudes? What even are they? You might even be wondering, like, why do we use the word Beatitude? That makes no sense. It comes from the Latin. We're about to do a lot of language stuff. I apologize really quickly. Some of you can tune out if you don't enjoy this. We, uh, uh, it comes from the Latin. So the Bible was translated into the Latin a long time ago, and it highly influenced all of our English stuff and English uh, translations. But the word in Latin is Beatus. That's where we get beatitude from. But that is not the original word in the text. The original word in the text would have been in Greek. 
And the original word is the Greek word makarios. And it is highly unfortunate that we have translated that word into English as blessed because when we think of blessed, we think of God blessing us. Again, I'm not saying that's not theologically true when you read through this passage, but that's not what this passage is talking about. It's not talking about the action of God in blessing us at all. The word makarios does not mean blessed. It actually means something closer to happiness. Something closer to true joy. Full joy. Uh, Jonathan Pennington, brilliant New Testament scholar who has influenced me greatly in the way I read the Sermon on the Mount, he translates it flourishing. Flourishing are those. Not a lot of people like the word happy. It's a little too flimsy in English. That's why I go truly joyful. Flourishing. This, this word, makarios, you should be a little familiar with what it means because it's actually the Greek equivalent of a Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is ashray. And now everybody's like, oh, thanks, Jonathan. That clarified things a lot. You're all familiar with this because you all remember everything we ever talk about in here. The last series that we did through the Psalms, do you remember how Psalm 1 begins? Do you remember the first word of Psalm 1? Blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates both day and night. He will be like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing its fruit, flourishing in season. The Psalms begin with a beatitude. Blessed. The Hebrew word right there? Ashrei. We talked about it a lot. I'm going to do something I never do. I'm going to quote myself. This is a quote from that sermon out of Psalm 1 when I was trying to define Ashrei for you. So the best I can do to define it is fullness of joy. Not a fleeting joy based on circumstances. We're not talking about like just glittery, glittery, happy feeling. Not a flippant joy that pretends like nothing bad ever happens, but a firm, unshakable joy no matter what happens. This is the joy that every human being longs for and spends their life searching for. And with its very first word, the book of Psalms claims to be holding out that joy to us. You want full joy forever? Psalm 1 says, let me show you how to have it. End quote. I share all of that with you because Ashrei and Akarios are the same thing. They're synonymous. When the Old Testament got translated into Greek, a very strange thing that almost never happens, happened. Every single instance of the Hebrew word ashrei was brought into Greek with the word makarios. Almost never happens. They're synonyms. They mean the same thing. Fullness of joy. The abundant life of full joy. And just like the Psalms, with his very first word in the Sermon on the Mount, 
Jesus claims to be holding out to us that joy. You want full joy forever? Jesus says, let me show you how to have it. Flourishing, truly joyful are the poor in spirit. Not quite what we were expecting. Not quite what his listeners would have expected. If you ask them, who, who has the ashray life? The makarios life? The abundant life of full joy? Pharisees and scribes. They got it. Jesus says, no. Truly joyful are the poor in spirit. Not the haughty, proud Pharisees with all of their external righteousness that receive all their praise from people and that is all the reward they will ever get. That's not true joy. He says, no. Truly joyful are the poor in spirit. That's who has the abundant life of full joy. That's who will flourish. The whole list of the Beatitudes is like this. It's not what we would expect. And that is because this whole list is designed to invite us away from all the false gospels that mislead us and invite us to true life in Christ. That's the purpose of the Beatitudes. To invite us into life in Christ. What does that look like? Jesus begins by saying it looks like being poor in spirit. That leads us to ask our final question. What is poor in spirit? What does it mean? What's that phrase? What is, what is it talking about? What is poor in spirit? As you might guess, that phrase has an Old Testament background particularly from the times in Israel's history when they were ruled by wicked kings, which ironically was often when they were economically prospering and doing their best. Ruled by wicked kings, economically prospering, and if you wanted to be a part of that economic prosperity, you had to participate in the wickedness of that society. For you to withdraw from it, to stand against it, would most likely mean you would be excluded from it. Is this starting to sound like Revelation a lot? would mean you would be excluded from it. In other words, remaining faithful to God would likely mean you would end up economically deprived, poor. Is it any wonder that Jesus would use this phrase, poor in spirit, to describe a list to his disciples that's going to end with verse 11? You remember verse 11? You follow me, you will most likely experience rejection from the world. That colors the way we see everything else, including what it means to be poor in spirit. This term comes from that time in Israel's history where if you did not remain, where remaining faithful to God meant opposing wicked kingdoms where you would most likely end up economically excluded. You would be poor. You would have nothing left to depend on but God. Poor in spirit, it's described probably best in the Old Testament in Isaiah 66 and verse 2, where God says, this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble 
The word in Hebrew right there is literally poor. But it doesn't just mean economically poor. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. In other words, shades, poor in spirit is a posture of complete and total dependence upon God. Did you get that? What is poor in spirit? It's a posture of complete and total dependence upon God. Scripture does show us that such a posture of complete dependence is often learned through things like economic poverty. And such a posture is often hindered by things such as economic success. Jesus has lots of warnings to give the rich. But, Scripture also tells us neither of those things is a guarantee. Being poor is not guaranteed humility. Being rich is not guaranteed pride. Scripture has many different categories, and it has categories for the foolish poor. It has categories for the wise rich who follows Jesus. In other words, economics is not at the heart of what it means to be poor in spirit. The posture of your heart, that's what's at the heart of what it means to be poor in spirit. Do you get that? Does that make sense? Is your heart humble? not haughty. That's, that's what poor in spirit is. It's a heart that's humble, not haughty. It's a, it's a heart that recognizes one's empty poverty. It's not a heart that's full of pride. It's, it's a heart like the heart of the tax collector in Luke 18. Do you remember? Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18 of a tax collector and a Pharisee who both go up to the temple to pray. You remember what those prayers sounded like? The Pharisee prays like this, God, I thank you that I'm not like other sinners, especially this tax collector. What does the tax collector pray in verse 13? But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's poor in spirit. It's, it's seeing yourself rightly in light of who God is. You see God rightly, and so you see yourself rightly, and that you cannot depend upon yourself. You can only and solely depend upon Him. Poor in spirit is seeing your life in the light of Christ. In light of who He is. Seeing Him accurately. I see myself accurately. And I am poor. i got nothing to bring to this table, Jesus. Holy and completely and solely depend upon You. Poor in spirit is seeing your life in the light of Christ. So that you know true life is only in Him. This is how these Beatitudes are an invitation to life in Christ. They begin by showing you true life is only in Him. It's not in you. We're poor in spirit. We, we can't. There's nothing in us to depend on. Solely and only true life is only in Him. What is poor in spirit? It is seeing my life in light of Christ, which, yes, may be painful at first, causing me to beat my breast and cry out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But shades, that's only where poor in spirit begins. That's not where it ends. Because if you keep reading in Luke 18, verse 14 tells us, I tell you, this man, that tax collector, he went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. In other words, poor in spirit may begin with confession and painfully realizing and seeing I have nothing to bring to the table. I solely and completely depend upon God, but it ends with with God justifying and exalting and glorifying you. 
Or to put it this way, the way that Jesus says it in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, what's the end of poor in spirit? It's inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Flourishing, truly joyful are the poor in spirit. Those who know they have nothing to bring to the table. How are they truly joyful? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. They get everything. And did you notice that promise? Look at it again. One last time right here, really quickly. We're almost done. Do you notice that promise is present tense? We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But it says theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. In other words, those who see their life in light of Christ, recognize their need, and throw themselves upon Christ as their king, they get his kingdom now. The abundant life of joy, it's theirs now even amidst being poor in spirit, even amidst being persecuted, we will learn by the end of this list. Because this is not, this abundant life of joy, it is not a fleeting joy based on circumstances, it's not a flippant joy that pretends like nothing's ever wrong. It is a firm, unshakable joy, no matter what happens. The poor in spirit have that joy because the kingdom is theirs now, and it will be theirs forever when Christ comes again to bring redemption to completion in the consummation of his kingdom. Shades, Jesus is inviting you into this life with these words, truly joyful are the poor in spirit. With with those words, he is beckoning you away from all the false gospels of this world that tell you truly joyful are actually the prideful and the arrogantly powerful. Is that not what this world tries to sell us as the gospel good news? You want true joy, an abundant life of true joy? That's found by the prideful and the arrogantly powerful. Are those not the kinds of people that our world holds up and prizes? Are those not the kind of politicians, ayo, that we hold up and prize? Are those not the kinds of celebrities or online personalities? We prize and, and we let these people speak authoritatively into our lives about where the abundant life of true joy is found. Jesus beckons you away from such false gospels by inviting you to see truly your life in light of who he is and find true life in complete dependence upon him. That's the point of the sermon, true life in Christ. That's the purpose of the Beatitudes, to invite you into true life. And that's what it means to be poor in spirit, to see that that is true life. And you're invited in.